0: There we go. Good morning. Um, Our reading this morning is from 1 Timothy uh, 3 through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an answer must, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife... or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. The word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning, everyone. I hope that y'all
1: are doing well. My name is Marco, and I serve as a preaching and teaching pastor. This is the faithful and the few. Uh, So many people this week, we've learned, have been super sick. So we'll definitely be praying for them as we continue our time this morning. In the event that you didn't hear Ephraim, we're going to find ourselves in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7 this morning. And so we have a lot of stuff to walk through. Uh, But before we do so, let me just remind you, if you're new, we'd love to hang out with you and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. And so fill out a, a Connect card and leave it in the Connect desk. In addition to that, if you're new and you don't have a Bible, let us hook you up with that. That'll be our gift to you. Uh, but as I mentioned, we have a lot to work through, so let's let's dive right into our time. And so a pastor who once preached from this passage, that is 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, a pastor who once preached from this passage took one of the key characteristics in order to, to give his sermon a really good title, and he titled it above reproach, the qualifications of an elder. And it sounds great because it's biblical. Uh, However, when he sent in his sermon notes to be printed for the congregation, something went wrong. Something went wrong, and when it came back, it printed as above approach, the qualifications of an elder. Above approach is a concept that sadly reflects the way many Christians feel about their spiritual leaders. In addition to that, I want you to think about how many people you know and that the reason they don't trust Jesus or the reason they've lost faith in the church has to do with wounds they have experienced from churches who were led poorly and sadly unbiblically. In our time this morning, I'd like for us to look at two big concepts. The first is to see what godly leadership looks like from this text. You, as the church, need to know what the qualifications for pastoral leadership are, and this certainly concerns you towards me and any other man who may be called to pastoral ministry. Second, as we walk through these qualifications or these characteristics, I want you to consider this question, okay? And here it is, is this your character? As we walk through these seven verses, I want you to consider the question, is this your character? See, whether you're a pastor or not doesn't have anything to do with whether, not, whether you should be sober-minded. Every Christian is called to be sober-minded, for instance. And so whether you're called to ministry or not, here's what you need to know about the, the Christian faith, and that is that character is foundational. Character shapes who you are. Character reveals who or what you worship. Character is demonstrated in the way in which you live your life. And that's the main idea. Character is foundational to the Christian life because it shapes you, it reveals what you worship, and it is shown in your daily life. And so let me pray, and then I'm gonna give you a little bit of context for where we have been and where we're gonna find ourselves, and then we'll dig into the text together. So let me pray, and then we'll, we'll continue in our time. Lord, as we come before you this morning, once more, we praise you for your grace and your mercy, both which consistently and constantly overflow into our lives. God, as a result, those who are here and know Jesus, would you, by your word and certainly by your spirit, lead them to know Jesus better. And that those who don't know Jesus, may they come and know him further. Father, in this season, we have seen many people get sick, um, both because of going back to school or being around just a bunch of other people. And so, Lord, we just pray for their recovery. We pray that you would heal them speedily so that they can come back to the gathering and worship Jesus alongside us. God, we thank you once more for this time and this day um, that is yours. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well here we go. Uh, before we dig in to 1 Timothy 3, let me set the stage for what's been going on and, and where we're at. First, uh, the Apostle Paul, in the event that you haven't been around, first, the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy, who is a young pastor in the city of Ephesus. And Paul is writing to Timothy so that he would restore order in the church, by correcting and confronting false teachers that are coming from, from within the church. These false teachers are swaying other individuals in their faith. And so Paul is writing to Timothy by saying, ultimately, I need you to stop them so that the church gets healthy once more and is back on track with their eyes on Jesus. Once Paul urges Timothy on what to do, Paul shifts gears and begins to explain how to do it, and that's been the start of chapter two that we were in two weeks ago. The first thing that Paul tells Timothy to do, or the first thing he encourages him with, is to begin with prayer, because the Christian life begins with prayer. Then he moves on from prayer towards posture and piety. This is what we looked at last week. Posture is the conditions of our heart toward God and one another. Piety is the outworking of that condition. And so Paul addresses that with Timothy in the context of raising and discipling godly men and women in the church. And now he comes to a place in chapter three where he's going to address what godly leadership ought to look like by hammering down on character. And he hammers down on character because it's paramount to the health of the church and certainly our own lives. Today we're gonna be looking at the qualifications of an elder. Next week, we're going to continue our time in chapter three, and we're going to look at the qualifications of deacons and the role of the congregation. So this entire chapter is certainly about order and leadership under the context of character. It is here that I want to mention what a healthy church should look like when led by godly leaders called pastors, because it is my experience that Many are unaware, this is within the church, many are unaware or have what could be unhealthy experiences of church leadership. For instance, I wanna share with you at least two common models of church leadership found here in the valley. These are not the only ones, uh, but as I consider our context and as you have shared your story with me, these are the two more common ones that I see, and you might be familiar with them. Here's the first one. It's called the anointed one right the anointed one many of you come from this background where there's a church and there's a solo pastor and and he is the anointed one and generally what that means is that this individual has been gifted with everything necessary to lead the church and he is so filled with the holy spirit that he is both untouchable and unquestionable And many of you come from that background. You don't say anything against the pastor. You don't go up to him and talk to him. You don't address things with him. You just do what you're told, right? And I wanna begin by saying this is a really poor model for church leadership, primarily because this individual lacks accountability and often is seeking power. Being a pastor is more a title of achievement than it is an office of service. The problem or the additional problem with a model like this is that when we read through the pages of scripture, we clearly see that uh, there, is, there should be a team of pastors in the local church. We would call this a plurality, right? multiple pastors serving the congregation. And so that's the first one that you may be familiar with, the the anointed one. And that one's kind of an intimidating one. As I've met with many in our church, people have come up to me like, you're so anointed, you're the anointed one, and we can't talk to pastor. Like, that's weird. Don't do that, please. You can always come and talk to me. There's not like this force field around me. Like, none of that exists, okay? The next one is uh, church hierarchy. And this is fairly common in the Roman Catholic faith. For instance, where the church leaders tend to be priests. They're not necessarily priests or pastors from the area. They're not from within the church. Instead, they are brought from without. They are brought from other cities or other countries to serve for a particular season in a particular church. Additionally, within the Roman Catholic faith, there tend to be these higher offices uh, of leadership, such as bishops or cardinals, and, and even the Pope when it comes to the papacy. One more time, this is a poor representation of church leadership for a few reasons. Number one, you may have heard the the titles or the words bishop, pastor, elder. When we look through the pages of the New Testament, the New Testament writers use these words interchangeably. So pastor, elder, bishop, overseer, you're going to hear some of those words in today's text those words are used interchangeably to mean the same thing. For instance, and we won't go into full detail, but for instance, in Acts 20, you see those words used interchangeably by the Apostle Paul to the pastors in Ephesus. And so that's number one. So we don't see this hierarchy of leadership. We might see different roles and functions, but not a higher level of office, so to speak. In addition to that, when we consider the New Testament, pastors are raised and developed and equipped from among the church. They love the local church because they're a part of the local church. They're not just brought in for a season and then they move out. Finally, in this type of model, when it comes to church leadership, church leadership is established without the church even having some sort of a voice in that, right? And again, what we see in the New Testament is that the congregation is barely involved when it comes to uh, those who aspire to pastoral leadership. Now, why does any of this matter? Those are two, two um I forgot what I just told you. Those are two models of church leadership, right? Now, why, why, does, why does this matter? Well, it matters because number one, I do not want this to be our church. I do not want this to be our church. That has never been the intention. And so in part, this sermon, while it is for you, the congregation, to be aware of pastoral qualifications and it is for you to have character reflection, this sermon is also for men, uh, for the men in our church, because our church needs godly, qualified, and equipped men to lead the church. Godly, called, and qualified men. That's number one. The second reason this matters is because I want to be absolutely clear about one thing. Jesus is the head of the church. Not the pastor, not me, or pastors. This is not my church by ownership. This is Jesus' church. Jesus is the head of the church. This church belongs to him. It is as Paul writes to the Colossians in chapter one, he says, Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus takes headship seriously, and though he is good and gracious, he takes it very seriously, because headship does not simply include authority, but responsibility. And that's what Jesus does. He takes responsibility. Unlike Adam, as we saw last week, where Adam failed in his headship to love and protect his wife, Jesus succeeds in taking responsibility for his bride, the church, by dying on a cross in our place for our sin resurrecting three days later so that we might be reconciled to the Father, our hearts renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit, and so that we would walk in a way that honors, reflects, and glorifies Jesus. And if that is not enough grace, God calls men into this office that is pastoral ministry to lead and serve the church. In fact, we would say it this way. Pastors, if you're asking, what do they do? They serve by leading, okay? So to summarize, Jesus is the head of the church. He loves the church, he pursues the church. Jesus restores all things within the church, and Jesus is returning one day for his bride, the church. Many of you have had bad experiences, and I'm very sorry. And while people are flawed and Jesus' representatives are not immune to sinful actions, know that Jesus is the one hope that we all have, for he is the only one that has never let us down. So turn to Jesus, for he is the head of the church. And so with that being said, making sure we have clarity on that, we're going to consider now 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, and we're going to begin with the aspiration of a pastor, and this is found in verse 1. Verse 1, Paul goes on to say, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So we're gonna park there for just a moment. Paul begins this section of scripture by saying, hey, I have a trustworthy phrase for you, a trustworthy expression. He uses this same expression back in chapter one and verse 15, where he says, the saying is trustworthy, that Jesus saves sinners. And the idea behind this expression is that Paul is saying it's trustworthy, not only because it's true, but because it's historical and because it's been proven. And so as he opens up, Chapter Three by saying, "Hey, uh, uh, as he opens up chapter three by saying that this saying is tr- trustworthy, Paul is ultimately saying, "You can bank on this phrase." Now, regarding this phrase, this isn't simply a list of, of things that Paul is going to provide us because it sounds good. Ultimately, these characteristics that Paul is going to provide are both rooted in his authority as an apostle and rooted in the character of Jesus. And so Paul says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. The word aspire means that this man, this individual who is, uh, who is discerning their call to pastoral ministry, he, he's saying that this man wants to do this the difference between desire and aspire is that to desire something is is to is to want it now and to have a conviction and a burden when it comes to aspiration it means that they're in it for the long haul so it is both this combination of conviction and burden and they want to do this but they're also in it for the long haul. They're in it. uh, They're all in. They are fully committed that there is no room for passivity here. And this is for the office of pastoral ministry. This is pertaining to marriage and relationships. This is family. That if an individual aspires to this, there is conviction. There is burden. There is a want to do this. In addition to that, we must recognize that yes, fear is real, but ultimately the conviction is so strong that it cannot be ignored. Further, I want you to know that you shouldn't confuse aspiration for ambition. There's a difference. Aspiration is conviction. It's not just something that sounds good too many men want the benefits of pastoral ministry or marriage or fatherhood, but no one wants to be a pastor, husband, or father. Those are two different things. Too many men want the benefits of that. Not too many men want the responsibilities that come with it. Too many people want to be spiritual, but not enough people want to pursue godliness And so Paul says, for the one who aspires, who has this conviction, who has this burden, for the one who aspires, they must be, he goes on in verse two, they must be, or he says, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. And so to be above reproach is to be a person of godly character. That is, no one can bring about false charges against you because of the way in which you watch both your life and your doctrine. Those two things are not separate. You cannot divorce belief from behavior. And this is where it all begins for Paul. It begins with, by being above reproach because above reproach sets the stage for the rest of the characteristics. Before Paul unloads or begin, before Paul begins to, to address all of these characteristics, he begins by saying that they must be above reproach, meaning they must be a person of integrity. This does not mean sinless. It means blameless and consistent. And the reason this is important, particularly for pastoral ministry, the reason it's important is because pastoral ministry can be daunting. It can be incredibly overwhelming. It can be very, very scary. Pastoral ministry, at the same time, can also be very dangerous. It can be very dangerous not just because temptation lurks in the shadows, but it could be very dangerous because you're going to take shots. You're going to not just have critics, you're going to have, as they say, haters. But there is something similar to that and to the way in which we function or lead in our homes. It's similar. It is daunting and it is dangerous. That's why Paul begins by saying if they aspire and they desire to go to this role, they must be above reproach. In other words, there must be conviction Within this person to pursue this call. And oftentimes, the word called gets really hyper spiritualized. I feel called to this, I feel called to that, I feel called here, here, and here. What exactly does it mean to be called? Here's how we would define it here at Storehouse McAllen To be called means that you have both a conviction and commendation. Conviction is that burden that this is what God is telling you to do. To not do this would be to disobey God. Commendation is when others speak into it and affirm or deny that call. Everybody sounds really spiritual and really certain when they say, God told me to do this. And then the other person says, No, he didn't. <laughs> Character, or excuse me, being called to X involves conviction and commendation. And so a man who thinks he is called must have both if he aspires to pastoral ministry. Now let's look at the character of the pastor. So this is the aspiration. Now let's look at the character. This is in verses two through three. And here's what Paul writes An overseer must be above reproach. And so here he's answering the question well, what does it mean to be above reproach? And this is going to sound weird, but we're going to skip for a moment the, the role that says the husband of one wife. We're going to put that in, a, in the category of the family. So just wanted to let you know I'm not skipping over it. So an overseer must be above reproach, sober minded, self controlled, respectable, hospitable, not a drunkard, uh, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. So he gives a list of character qualities in terms of, hey, this is what it looks like to be above reproach, both for the Christian, but in particular, a pastor. And so let's begin with sober-minded. To be sober-minded means to be vigilant about spiritual dangers. This is certainly applied to in the church, but also in the home and in your own life. That means you have an awareness of what is going on, not just temptation, but things that might put you or your family or your church in danger. You're able to uh, provide a spiritual protection because you're sober-minded. That is, you have sound judgment. You're aware of what's happening. You're not double-minded. Double-minded, according to James, is that you have one foot in the world, one foot in Christianity, and you're trying to make it work. It doesn't work that way. That's, that would be the definition of being drunk. That's not being sober-minded. In addition to that, sober-mindedness has to deal with making decisions. And if you're gonna make decisions, then you need to have sound judgment. You need to be sober-minded. You need to be aware of spiritual dangers within the church, within your family, within your own life. And he couples this with being self controlled. Self controlled is the ability to control your appetites, your desires, and your passions the ones that draw you away from the Lord, the ones that draw you away from the people of God, that you actually have those under control because you are self-aware, sober-minded, and aware. I have a propensity to be pulled in this direction. One pastor said it this way, how should I be able to pastor others if I do not have full power in command of myself? So we can remove leadership for a minute and you could apply that to your own life personally. I I think, I could be wrong, but I think it is safe to say that we're pretty aware, we can be pretty aware of temptations, of passions, of appetites that we have. You are aware of those. To be sober-minded is to have sound judgment and not engage those things. To be self-controlled, is to put them either to death or to continually turn away from them. And he goes from sober-mindedness to self-control to respectable, that the pastor uh, needs to be orderly, that his life isn't chaotic, right? That his life isn't chaotic, that his life is consistent with his doctrine. But in addition to that, being respectable means being known, Being respectable means being known. If someone aspires to leadership, but they are not known, they're not going to be respected. And I think this is one of the, the, I don't know, the cultural values of the valley. Everybody's always kind of sketched when it's someone new. And like before you even meet that new person, you will have heard all about them from everyone else right? It's like you're doing your research. It's like the Valley Wikipedia, right? I'm not saying that's good or bad, but there is a value that comes with being known. He continues that he must not be a drunkard. This has to deal once again with being sober-minded, but nevertheless, drinking too much leads to uh, impaired judgment, to a loss of self-control, a loss of respect, and other poor and tragic um, decisions, such as being violent, right? This could be violence as a result of being drunk. This could be violence as a result of just pursuing physical violence. Someone who enjoys it. Someone who feels like that's the answer. Someone who is engaging it just because they wanna engage it. Someone who is engaging it without being sound or without having the right judgment. In addition to that, he says not quarrelsome. That's an individual who always wants to fight, and the way in which they want to fight is they're constantly arguing. They're constantly pushing back. They're constantly the ones who have something to say, something to argue for, something they don't like, something they want to point out, something that they want to complain about. And what ends up happening is that it causes division in the church, it causes dissension in the church, the root of this is not just pride, it's envy, and they have a contentious spirit. In other words, this is what they want to do. They don't just want to stir the pot for laughs. What they want to do is quarrel. They want to fight. They want to argue. They want to divide. They want to descend. They want to push people in a direction that doesn't actually lead them to godly maturity. Paul addresses this in chapter two, verse eight, where he says, I want all of the men in the church to pray in all places with holy hands, right? Without anger or quarreling. So clearly this was an issue at the church of Ephesus and it is clearly important for us. And so he says, not to be a drunkard, not to be violent, not to be quarrelsome, but what? But to be gentle, but to be gentle. The true strength of a man lies in their gentleness, Now, this doesn't mean that pastors are not going to rebuke sin or have firm words in certain contexts, but it does mean that being gentle involves being sympathetic and compassionate. And who best demonstrates that? The Lord Jesus. The author of Hebrews in chapter four says that though he was without sin, he sympathizes with us. In Mark 6, when he's walking off of the boat and he sees the people coming before him, this is Jesus, and he sees the people coming before him, Mark writes that he, had, he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he had compassion for them. So what does compassion mean? It means that Jesus sees the need, he feels the need, and then he does something about the need. In addition to that, a pastor must be courageous, particularly when rebuking sin, because a pastor who lacks the courage to confront sin, when that happens, the church loses conviction and tolerates sin. Paul continues, not a lover of money. Let me just, let me just say this, all right? If you're in ministry for the money, you're dumb. That's right. It's a pastoral word, You should not go into ministry for money. That does not mean that pastors shouldn't get paid well or fairly. But it certainly is not, as one TB pastor said, if Jay-Z drives a Ferrari, why shouldn't I? Or another one who posted on his church's Facebook page urging his congregation on the need for a new $54 million jet goes on to say, if Jesus was physically walking the earth today, he wouldn't be riding a donkey. He'd be in an airplane preaching the gospel around the whole world. That was Jesse DuBlantes, by the way, in case you wanted to troll him, I guess. Here's the issue at hand. Can a pastor not be successful? No, that's not what he's saying. The issue at hand is greed because greed kills contentment. And again, we're addressing the qualifications of a pastor, but you're also doing some character reflection. So this isn't just solely uh, focused on, on, on leadership in the church. This is also for you to reflect on the character of your heart. See, greed kills contentment, but the pursuit of contentment kills greed and increases thanksgiving. Man, how do you know if you are not content? There is little to no thanksgiving in your life. That's how you know if you're not content. And finally, in this list at least, Paul says that the pastor must be hospitable. That is that the pastor opens up his home to visitors. Like the word hospitality comes from a love for strangers. So he opens up their home for, uh, for visitors and the church body. Why? Well, for several reasons. To fellowship, enjoy friendship, to enjoy meals, but also to care for the church. But it's also this arena for discipleship. It's an arena for discipleship and how to live life together, but it is also an arena of vulnerability. Why is it an arena of vulnerability? When I invite you, or if I invite you into my home, you're going to see how I interact with my family. You're going to see if we're orderly. You're going to see if we're clean. You're going to see how we do life together. That's incredibly vulnerable. That's a lot of exposure so hospitality isn't just a meal. It is much more than that. It is, simp- it is part of it, but there is something much, much more to that. And so one of the things that I would push on you is like, are you hospitable? All right, are you hospitable or do you only enjoy the hospitality from others? When I was growing up, when the Jehovah Witnesses would come to my parents' house and like they would ring the doorbell, my mom would always yell, las hermanas, and that meant like cover yourself with the blanket, turn off the TV. And we had this really narrow hallway. And so my brothers would peek out from that hallway because my my mom had, it wasn't stained glass on the front door, but it was, it was that glass where you couldn't really see if someone was actually out there. And so my brother would be peeking and it was worthless because they all wear glasses and like, you can't see. And I'm in the front burning up because I have the blankets on top of me, right? Like <laughs> that's not hospitable right? When the, the Jehovah Witnesses have come to our house and my wife will say, hey, the, the, the J-dubs are here. I'll run for my Bible and I'll go grab it. And then I go out there and talk to them and they haven't come back. So, um, but I love, I love doing that. I, I really do. Nevertheless, the character of a pastor is rooted in a love for Jesus, a dependency on the Holy Spirit and is shown in the way in which he cares for the church through hospitality. So are you hospitable? When was the last time you had people in your home? All right, now let's look at the skill of a pastor. This is found in verse two, the skill of a pastor. What I want you to notice is it's, all I'm doing is just categorizing it neatly, but this entire list is a list of character qualities. Here, when we see the skill of a pastor, this is the only skill. Everything else is rooted in character, right? And so I want to address this, and this is the skill, able to teach. That's all Paul says here. He is able to teach. To Titus, he gets a little bit more specific in that first chapter, right? Able to teach so that he would promote sound doctrine, but also defend against false doctrine. And so here, I want to address it in two ways. First, pastors preach and teach the Bible, And so as we raise godly men who are uh, called and qualified for pastoral ministry, they're going to be preachers and teachers. The pulpit is the primary ministry of this church. Now, that doesn't mean that all those pastors are going to preach up here. Some of them are going to teach in a variety of other ways, but there will be preachers, all right? In addition to that, the, the, the role and the duty of preaching is to preach the word faithfully, preach the word of God faithfully to the people of God uh, continuously so that they would be pointed to the person and work of God. It is not, this is not going to be like a motivational speech. This isn't self-help up here. This is, let's look to the character of God for he is the one in whom we will put all all of our hope in because of jesus right pastors when it comes to being able to teach this then means that pastors must know their bibles they must know their bibles not just theology and so some of you who are discerning that call you actually and it feels weird saying it that way but you actually need to know your bible not just have read a couple of articles on the gospel coalition or you subscribe to ligonier ministries it is that you actually know your bible Pastors must spend deep time with God. They must spend considerable time in prayer over their own souls, the souls of the church, and the direction in which the Lord is leading. Because the pastor's role is to feed the church the word of God. It is to lead the church in the direction that the Lord is leading. It is to protect the church from false doctrine and false teachers. And it is to know the church by caring for her that's one way I wanted to address it. But in addition to that, you as the congregation, you need to know your Bible. Like this isn't a buffet on Sundays where you just take and you're like, I'm good. No, you're going to put into action by diving into the word of God so that you would delight in the person of God. You need to know your Bible so that you would watch over yourself, so that you would protect your family, so that you would watch your life and doctrine. If you're you're married, you need to know your Bibles. Husbands, you need to know your Bibles so that you can protect, lead, love, and serve your family. Too many men in our church do not know their Bibles well. Therefore, when spiritual dangers are lurking, they are unprepared and ill-equipped to protect their family. I was with an older saint this, uh, this, this week. We had lunch, and it was great his name will remain nameless. Um, And he tells me, he says, I just, I just don't like to, I don't, I don't like to read. It's, it's, it's a struggle. It's a struggle for me. Uh, It's a struggle for me to read. Uh, I've just never been a reader. And, uh, and and I said, no, I understand. And he says, "Uh, I was telling this to my wife the other day. I was telling her, I'm just, I'm just not a reader. It's not something that I, that I do well. And uh, his wife, who's awesome, she goes on, from what he's telling me, that she goes on to say, yeah, you're a reader. And she grabs his phone and says, you're constantly reading on this. You're reading articles. You're reading social media. You read the news. You watch TV and you read the headlines. You're a reader. And his response to that was, I had nothing to say to that. And I was like, man, that's solid. That is solid. So you're a reader. You are a reader. Know your Bibles. Parents, know your Bibles so that you would disciple your children. Godly leadership in the church and in the home begins with the knowledge and delight in the Word of God so that it serves, protects, and nourishes the soul. The next is the family of a pastor. This is found in verse 2 at the beginning and verse 4. So let's go back to verse 2. An overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Then down to verse four, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And that question is a rhetorical question. It's meant to make you kind of get stumped, okay? So let's go into it. The first one is that he must be a faithful husband. When Paul is saying the husband of one wife, he's saying he's a one woman man. He is a faithful husband, that he faithfully pursues his wife, that he pursues her by loving her and serving her and taking responsibility for her and their home. That's what it means to be a faithful husband. Now, a quick side note. Does the pastor, at least for this, the pastoral uh, office, does the pastor have to be married? No, but if he is, he is to be a faithful husband, self-controlled, free from passions and desires. That means that his wife is the apple of his eye. Who is his bride? His wife, not the church, Too many times the church becomes the mistress to too many pastors. Now, sometimes it's because of overwhelming pressures. Sometimes it's because they just want to dig into the ministry more and more and more. And who's the one that receives the not-so-cool effects of that? It's the wife. The husband of one woman. He is faithful. He loves her. He pursues her. He takes responsibility for her. She is his first church. Yes, certainly for the office of pastor, but husbands, you are to faithfully pursue, love, uh, serve, protect your wives. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Paul says that they must manage their own household well, that the family, check it, the family of a pastor is the testing ground for ministry. That's what that means. The family of a pastor, the way in which he leads his home is testing ground for ministry. So if you don't have your home or your house in order, then don't step forward because I feel called. If your home is not in order, don't worry about it. And so what Paul is saying is that the husband, the father is the head of the home, that he is the spiritual leader who leads the household by consistently caring for the needs of his family exercising spiritual authority through leading and caring. Now, I want to park on the word manage. The word manage means several things. One, it means consistency. It doesn't mean that you bat a thousand. I certainly do not. But it means that you lead your family consistently. Here's what that also includes. Repentance. Confession and Repentance. You see, too many husbands and too many fathers will say, I lead the family because I do this, because I provide that, or because of whatever reason. But you never hear confession and repentance from the mouth of the father. When it comes to children, the reason they know that they are a son or a daughter is because of the way the father loves them. That includes when dad screws up. Confession and repentance is part of managing your own household. Managing your own household means sacrifice. You're going to sacrifice things you want to do, the life that you feel you ought to have had. That's part of self-control, putting those desires, putting many of those things off to the side, or even putting them to death. It means sacrifice. Managing your own household means that you will be inconvenienced. But leading your home, your family, your wife, your children is not about your comfort. It is leading them in the ways of the Lord and showing them what that looks like through your life and certainly through your words. Managing your own household means caring for your family, not just physically. But spiritually, managing your own household also means embracing your household. Now, here's what I mean by that. Embracing, I literally mean hugging. I have failed in this on a number of occasions because I'm stupid. Managing your own household when it comes to loving your family means embracing them. And so I hope that as you lead your families, as you serve one another in your families, that this is weighty. And if it feels a little weighty, that's good because this isn't for kids. I don't want for me to be the excuse of, I never confessed or repented to my family because, oh, they knew what I was about, you know, because I'm a pastor that I never embraced my children because, oh, you know, they saw me preaching and they saw me in the word. All of that means absolutely nothing if I forfeit that. And again, if it's heavy on you, good. It needs to be. That's why aspiration, conviction, and commendation is required for that call. Now, he continues. He continues when it comes to the children, that the children should be submissive, right? For someone who doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? What does it mean for children to be submissive? Here's, here's how we could unpack that. The best way to raise obedient children is not to manipulate them, but by respecting them. A father who is inconsistent, a father who is angry, a father who is manipulative, not only increases the chances of rebellion from their children, but is not fit to be a spiritual father in the church. This is one where, I don't know if it's good or not. I, I, well, I think it is. I have really low tolerance for this one. Men, if you don't love your wife well, faithfully, sacrificially, if you don't love her with your every being so that you would point her to the Lord Jesus, I don't want to hear about your call to ministry. If you don't spend any time with your children because you rather go do your thing because you've worked so many hours, I do not want to hear about your call to ministry. I do not want to hear, especially if you're unmarried, I don't wanna hear you talk to me about marriage if you can't clean your room, you're still looking at porn, and you can't manage your own finances, and you cannot lead yourself consistently among others because your character is flawed. I don't wanna hear about marriage or ministry. Because marriage and ministry is for men. And if that is weighty, good. And I don't mean that insultingly. I don't mean that to guilt you. I, don't mean, I mean that as someone who has failed in this area a ton. A man must lead his household well by exercising spiritual authority through care, love, and consistency, a pastor must lead the church well by exercising spiritual authority in the same manner. Now let's move to verse six. And verse six is the experience of a pastor. Right? And so here's what Paul writes in verse six. He must not be a recent convert. Now some would even push back on that. Like, why is that such a big deal? I mean, what if he's super passionate about ministry? Well, let me kind of give you a little bit of a story. So I don't know if you're familiar with Wheaton College, it's a college up in Illinois. So one summer, the groundkeepers uh, made a pretty bad mistake. Uh, They leveled their soccer field, and then they sowed new grass improperly. And not too long thereafter, it it all washed away. And so by the end of the summer, the field was nothing but this giant patch of dirt. And so they came back, and they planted new seed, and that seed sprung into grass immediately. And it looked like a legitimate soccer field, right? Because it was crisp, it was clean, it was really, really nice grass. But the problem is that it couldn't be played on because the grass had not matured. And so if they had allowed their athletes to play on the field, every time the athletes would kick a ball, uh, patches and chunks of grass and dirt would fly everywhere. It It wasn't mature. And so they had to leave the grass or had, they had to leave the field alone and they had to allow the grass to weather the winter months before it was ready to be used. You know, like why does this story matter? Okay, a new Christian is not ready to pastor a church because they have not endured the winter of spiritual difficulty. Pastoral ministry is not for beginners. Neither is marriage or a family. I want you to notice in this that Paul doesn't give an age. He doesn't give an age. In fact, at one point, I think it's in 1 Timothy, I could be wrong, but at one point Paul tells Timothy, hey, don't let anyone look down on you for your youth, because he was a very young pastor. Instead, set an example. Nevertheless, it's that Paul doesn't give an age, and it's not that we shouldn't consider the age of a pastor, but we should prioritize his spiritual maturity first knowing a lot doesn't mean you have tested character. Does that make sense? Knowing a lot of stuff doesn't mean you have character. It just means you know a lot of stuff. Paul continues in verse 6. He goes on to say, he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And so he goes on to say, hey, there's a danger when you lay hands on a pastor too soon and install them, particularly if they are a new Christian. There's a danger. And what's that danger? It's that they can be puffed up. They can be proud and arrogant. And the truth is, and maybe many of you can attest to this, is that many new Christians are sponges. They they are soaking everything up, but at their core, they are still immature, they are unkind, and they are proud, which means their judgment is still clouded. Their hearts still govern their decisions, and their walk is still inconsistent with their doctrine. They need to grow up spiritually. I love this one, especially when we've, by uh, God's grace, we've had like families and guys come come to our church and be like, hey man, I'd love to serve. And then I'll ask them like, oh man, wh- where can you serve? Tell me. And they're like, I'm really good at preaching. I'm really good at teaching. I'm really good at counseling, Right? And uh, I, I laugh and I tell them, no, I, I don't want any of that from you. And they're like, oh, then what can I do? And I'll say, hey, I need you to go stack chairs. And they're like, I don't do chairs. I'm like, okay, then what I need you to do is go serve in kids ministry. I need you to go and serve in kids ministry because you're going to be very quickly humbled by our theological niños. We're, we're going to see how good you know that theology because you read that one page of John Calvin's book. Right? And so some of you want to teach, and some of you want to dive into this, show our children. Everyone wants to lead until responsibility fully falls on them. It is not the age of a pastor that should be the determining factor, but the spiritual maturity and character development of that person. That is what we're looking for. And now we come to verse seven. This is the reputation of the pastor. Okay, so here you go. This is what Paul says. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace. Interestingly enough, there, there's some consideration to be made when it comes to about pastors. There's some consideration to be made when it comes to those outside of the church, to those who don't know Jesus. In short, what Paul is saying is pastors need to be known in their community. Not only is their life on watch by others, but so is their doctrine. They need to be known by those in their community. If pastors are not known in the community and the community doesn't think much of a pastor, then they're not gonna think much, if anything, about the church. And this is what Paul has been addressing with Timothy this whole time. Watch your life and watch your doctrine. Yes, as you correct and as you confront false teachers, but also as you're among the community. Character is important in the community. Character matters in the community. Here's what one church father said. I think this is up on the screen. He goes on to say, although Paul and the other apostles were often persecuted, they were never brought up on moral charges. Quite the opposite. They were slandered as deceivers and impostors on account of their preaching. And this is because they could not attack their moral characters and lives for why did not one say of the apostles that they were fornicators unclean or covetous persons but that they were deceivers which relates to their preaching only must it not be that their lives were irreproachable and every time you see paul or james or john addressing the attacks that they're receiving it's always doctrinal it's never about their character When Jude addresses this, he's talking about people from within the church. When John addresses this, Paul addresses this. He's talking about people from outside of the church. And again, you never see them actually address these other their their character, their moral character. It's always what they're preaching. But their character isn't what's on trial. Character matters in the community. You need to be known. And so Paul concludes, verse seven, with a warning, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Here's what you need to know. Satan hates pastors. Satan hates spiritual leaders. Satan is out planning and strategizing to not simply bring the church down, but the spiritual leaders within the church and in the home. It's a military strategy. You start with the officers first, and then you make your way into the rest of the unit. We must resist Satan. We must watch out for temptation. We must live above reproach, and we must use sound judgment. When pastors are arrogant, when, paris, when pastors are arrogant, unrepentant, immature, indecisive, unaware, and not diligent, there is always the danger of, of sinful behavior. And when he says that he may fall into the snare of the devil, this means that the church will be destroyed. The church is brought into, dis, into question and disgrace. I mean, if you consider over the last two years, all these different big mega church pastors who have come before the news and media and how the churches have been affected as a result of their decisions, and it's always character related. And so what do we do? We must be on watch of our life and our doctrine. Do you complain more than you contribute? Oftentimes, or let me, let me back up. These are the characteristics for a pastor and you're also, so now you're aware, but in addition to that, you're also reflecting upon your own character. But in addition to that, when it comes to pastoral ministry, oftentimes people are like, well, I would run the church this way. I would run the church that way. That's complaining and not contributing. We don't need that. Why don't we need that? Because Satan's out to get us. And so that might be your opportunity to serve. Well, I don't know if that's me, then please do not complain. Your life preaches something about what you believe to those in the church and to those outside of the church. And so it's here where I'd like to transition briefly into having an honest word with you before we close it up. I got a couple of things. I'll try to be brief, although that's not my strong suit. Here we go. First, we need godly men who aspire to the office of pastor. Men who aspire, not who are simply ambitious, but men who aspire. Men who desire this noble task, not just think it's a good idea, Men who have conviction that they are burdened and to not follow through would be to disobey God. Men who have commendation, that is, that the church recognizes, hey, I think this could be you. I cannot be the only one after five years. There's just, there's just no way I'm the, no, there's no way logically that I can be that in the past, some have not been fit for pastoral ministry. Part of my job is to be that gatekeeper to be consistent with these character qualities. Others, it wouldn't have worked with other convictions, and so they have gone out, and that's great, but I cannot be the only one. Currently, we have four men who are discerning the call, who are thinking through, praying, man, is this what God is calling me to? They're seeking commendation. They're getting counsel. I need more. And I'm not just talking to the young bucks. It's weird that I'm the oldest person on staff. We should have at least three pastors by now. So men, if your house is not in order, start there don't talk to me about pastoral ministry and if your house is in order if your house is in order then it will be seen and your character will be a good result of it so then let me ask you is this what the lord is calling you to is this what the lord is calling you to you might say you're afraid no one said that this isn't scary and it's not like it's not scary the day after you're installed It's not like you get like these spiritual superpowers and all of a sudden like, oh, I'm not afraid anymore. You're gonna be afraid. here's what I would say. Have the conversation with your wife. Ask, am I this man? Go to 1 Timothy 3, go to Titus 1, go to 1 Peter 5, go to Acts 20 and ask your wife, am I this man? And that's a good question to ask even if you don't aspire to pastor ask, am I this man? Pray and get counsel. Get counsel within the church. Hey, do you think I'm this man? You might hear someone say, hey, I I think you are. I think you are. I think there's, this might be the area you need to work on. Or you might get the response, no, I don't think you're this man yet. Wives, let me encourage you. Be honest be honest, but be gracious Don't be like, no, you're not this man. And let me tell you why you're not this man. And since we're on this conversation, let me tell you about everything else I hate about you, right? Like don't do that. Be honest, but be gracious. Okay. Second thing I want to mention is if you haven't met her, it's my beautiful wife right here. Her name is Rebecca. I love her to death. She is not the co-pastor of this church. She's not the co-pastor. She's not my co-pastor. She's my wife. My wife is my wife. And if you're like, well, what do you expect of her? To be a faithful member of the church. That's it. She serves in women's ministry because she loves to disciple other women and seeing them flourish in the word. Not because I told her to do women's ministry. She serves because she loves the church. So, That's my wife, just making that really clear. When it comes to my family, my family has sacrificed a lot. They have seen me weather everything from joy to depression and to despair. All while we pray for godly men. Any shots that I've ducked or ignored or dismissed have hit my family. I cannot keep doing this alone. And I'm thankful, let me say one other thing, I am thankful, utterly thankful for our staff team. They are beasts at what they do. They serve you in ways that you are unaware just because they love you. I'm so thankful for them and our volunteers, but I cannot keep doing this alone. So men, talk to your wife ask the honest questions, pray to the Lord, seek counsel, and make a decision. That's the one that I find to be the most difficult for young men, making a decision. And that's what I need from you. I need you to make a decision. Our church needs you. Our church needs men, not boys who can shave, I've been figuring out how to share all of that. And so I felt that was the best way to do it. My desire, and I want to be clear, is not to guilt anyone. I just want to be honest with you. And in the midst of this, what has sustained me, my family, and our church, I believe, is the grace of the Lord Jesus and the prayers of many of the saints. The Lord Jesus loves his church and he appoints godly men who are called and qualified to lead to the best of their ability through proclamation and care for the souls of his church. This is not impossible, for Jesus demonstrated it passionately by entering into our mess, living and walking among us, and assuming our responsibility and dying on a cross for our sins in our place so that we might be saved, reconciled to the Father, and empowered by the same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus has not only overcome where we have failed, but as the great shepherd of our souls, Jesus is both our example and the one who equips us for his great mission. The author of Hebrews says it this way, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you. So he's not just our example, he's the one who equips us with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So Christian, what does your character reflect? I want to encourage you. I want to exhort you. And I want to dare you to examine yourself today. Men, I want you to ask that question. Am I this man? Is the Lord calling you to pastoral ministry or you need help? Is the Lord calling you to pastoral ministry, but you're afraid or you're ignoring the call? It's one thing to be afraid and to process those fears. It's another thing to have the conviction and to run away from it. If you're ignoring it, then there's a space there of disobedience to the Lord Jesus. So, to the one who is reflecting uh, their, their character and their heart, and to the one who is discerning this call, man, let me invite you to come before the Lord Jesus, to surrender yourself, and say, Lord, what is your will? What is your will? align my heart to your will, not the other way around. Repent of your sin, trust in the Lord Jesus, know that you are covered by grace, know that you come before him redeemed and forgiven, present tense, and hear what the Lord has to say. And if you're not a Christian, I'll, I'll say it this way, Jesus is the head of the church, and the church is the only people who admit they're in a process. This is called sanctification. But before you get there though, you must come before Jesus who is the author and perfecter of our Christian faith. Who entered into our world to live in our place, to die in our place for our sin so that we might be reconciled to the Father. And so he invites any and all sinner to repent of their sin and to trust in him and in him alone. Church, when it comes to to character, Character is foundational to the Christian life because it shapes who you are, it reveals who or what you worship, and it is demonstrated by the way in which you live your life. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus who is the head of the church. We thank you for sending Jesus to live for us and to die for us in our place so that we might be reconciled to you. God, we thank you not only uh, because Jesus is our good God and Savior, but because he is our great shepherd who cares for our souls the way a doctor cares for our bodies. Leadership involves not just authority, but responsibility and stewardship. And we confess that we regularly ignore and distract ourselves from those areas. God, if we're honest, our hearts are restless very often. And they are full of our own selfish desires and comforts. But the gospel teaches and reminds us that you are gracious because of Jesus. Therefore, Lord, we ask for three things this morning. First, that our hearts would find their rest in you. That we would give our hearts fully and promptly over to you. Second, we pray that your Holy Spirit would fill uh, our hearts and minds with a godly character, a heart that is, that is a heart that has been formed by your grace and through trial. And finally, God, we pray for godly men to both love their families consistently and faithfully, and for godly men, men to step up and into the call of pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. God, we ask this for your glory and our good. Therefore, may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be pleasing to you this morning. Amen.